One of the things I always find myself thinking is, why was this requested for rumination? Why was it voted for at this point in time? Because ruminations aren't just requested and freely accepted anymore. As, as anybody's aware of my new Floodgates process knows, uh, now ruminations are voted on by patrons, which means a sufficiently large number of people said, I really want to see Lore Runner do a rumination on Dune, the film. And I made it clear it's about the film. And I made it clear up there, you know, this is about the David Lynch film. Not the short miniseries, not the other miniseries, not the book. The David Lynch film. I would have said no to the book anyways. Uh, unfortunately, as I discovered several times previously, books just don't really work for my rumination format. For reasons I've already discussed. I'm not going to go into that again. But that leaves me in a really weird place. Because now I'm forced to talk about a film that by its very nature I almost have to talk about the book and the fact that I've not only read the book but the sequels to the book and briefly touched on the stuff by Kevin J. Anderson and I forget his name uh, the the stuff that happened after Mr. Herbert died it's it's kind of like the Star Wars thing where it's a little hard to separate it so I decided to go into this with a little bit of a different mentality because I noticed that as an adaptation this kind of didn't quite slot in, in the same way that other adaptations do. For example, I could look at Empire Strikes Back, and then I could look at Shadows of the Empire, and the two feel congruent with each other. But I cannot look at Dune the film and Dune the book, because they do not. I'll be bringing up a couple of little things over the course of this and how they contrast, but I think the biggest point, and I'm going to save it for pretty much last, really makes it so I didn't quite enjoy this film. And I'm just going to be honest about that. This is actually my third time seeing this film overall. I saw it once when I was a kid, uh, once when I was a little bit older, watching it with a friend, and today when I was watching it for this particular rumination. Let me just start by saying that, oh my god, the development of this film was just wow. This film, they were originally starting work on the whole Dune novel, or excuse me, the Dune film adaptation in the 60s. I want you to do me a favor, for those of you who either don't have the kind of visual memory or don't have it, look up 1960s sci-fi and just see what science fiction movies and shows looked like at that point in time. Just, just do that for a second. Arthur Jacobs was the gentleman who went ahead and saw the coming tides and was like, I'm going to go ahead and buy the rights to do a film version of Dune. And then squatted on them, basically asking for money in order to have those rights from him. Sadly, he squatted on those rights for years uh, and years and years and then died. Not related to the thing, at least I hope it's not related, but uh, regardless, once he died, the rights reverted. What then happened was three other companies who not only got the rights, but actually put legitimate money, millions of dollars, uh, just a couple million, but still into the millions range of money into trying to make these film, this film a reality. Uh, that didn't really go anywhere, and that didn't really succeed, and um, more, most infamously, a certain gentle, gentleman actually went into, like, okay, I'm going to film this, and blew through his entire budget on a single scene. So, for reasons that are best left to the ages, uh, the next decided person to be the perfect pick for doing this film would be David Lynch. No, I'm actually kidding. It's actually Ridley Scott. Because originally, this is going to be Scott's next big film. Now, 
Unfortunately, I have found a weirdly lacking amount of information on exactly the lineup of events and what happened and why does he ended up bowing out of the film. Because near as I can tell, what happened is Ridley Scott's brother died, which is tragic and horrible. And so he immediately said, okay, I want to get to work immediately on the film. But they weren't able to do it, so he bowed out and went to work on Blade Runner instead. Now... That makes a degree of sense if the idea was he was trying to escape the death of his brother by burying himself in his work. But other accounts say that he bowed out of the project the moment his brother died to go grieve. And then once he had recovered from that, he came back, but then decided to go on to Blade Runner. So I'm, I'm really not 100% sure what happened with that. I've heard conflicting reports on this. This, this was a while ago, guys. <laughs> um, so then they were like, okay, <laughs> no problem, guys. We've all got a plan. Uh, Star Wars had already come out by this point in time, the original Star Wars. In fact, uh, David Lynch has gone on record saying that one of the things he wanted to do was to bring a little bit of Star Wars into the Dune universe. Uh, cinematically, I mean, not in a bad way. And I'm kind of with that on concept because Dune... How do I put this? Dune is a little dry. Uh, the book, I mean, specifically. It's not as dry as Tolkien, but it is definitely dry. There is a lot of very slow, very... Um, I want to say plotting scenes. Now, I'm not saying that is necessarily a bad thing. It is worth noting. What I am saying is that adapting that to the large screen t uh, you know, for film is going to be difficult without it looking plotting and slow, and it's just not going to catch certain audiences. So he wanted to add a little bit more grandiose epic scale to it. And if I could say one thing in defense of this film, I think it succeeded in that one part. There were several scenes that I felt really managed to capture, uh, let's go with the word scope of what's going on. Probably my favorite is actually when the worm comes up over the mining vessel and then just crushes it in its maw. That was a nice scene. Uh, there were several scenes elsewise that helped to emphasize the scope of how widespread the Empire is or how the Noble House's reach is. Even though we only really kind of touch on four planets in this particular film, we do get the strong sense of just how much additional is out there. Again, getting back to that scope thing, the scene where all the dozens, if not hundreds of ships are boarding into the transport ship in order to be transported over to Arrakis. That was a nice touch. I like that. Again, scope. Very nice stuff. <clears throat> now... I also, uh, but, but in addition to that, I have to mention this. So all the money's already been spent. They've got David Lynch now because of his work on The Elephant Man, which is funny because I didn't even like that film. And for those of you not aware, David Lynch has a little bit of a reputation for being weird. And good God, does that show in this film. I don't know how much of this specifically sits on Lynch's shoulders. He has in many ways disavowed this film and said, no, 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 I, that's not anything like what I wanted. Which makes me wonder if the original cut was better or worse. <laughs> the cat thing. I mean, really? Um, he does a lot of things to make this film a little bit weird. And, and what's funny is, that's me at 35 saying this. Imagine me as a kid. I don't actually remember how old I was. I have to really think about it. When I first saw this film with my mom, and we're watching it, I'm just sitting here like, Mom, is this film weird? Yes, it's weird. Okay. She, of course, called me Lore. Yes, Lore. Because that name existed back then. Yes, Lord, it's very weird. Okay, I was just wondering. <laughs> and then they decided to film everything in Mexico, uh, in a specific city, which I forget the name of. I didn't jot it down. Forgive me. Now, you might be wondering, uh, why are you bringing up Mexico? Well, you ever heard of the saying, you get what you pay for? Now, that saying isn't universally true. There's actually several nuances and additional subtleties for the you get what you pay for that kind of go on top of that. But in this case... 
You know, I just realized. Hmm. There we go. <laughs> that hasn't been there in my last couple of recordings. Production values. They, uh, in this case, they decided to go to Mexico to film because it would be cheaper. Uh, they, they, the pesos were not doing well at the time. Uh, the peso was not doing well at the time. And they were deciding this would be a great move financially. And then everything in the world went wrong. We had people sick. We had people physically injured. We had damage from terrain. We had electricity outages. We had issues with the locals. It, everything that you could think of that went wrong, like accepting the level of volcano erupting underneath them went wrong. It was bad. And of course, they ended up spending more money than they actually planned to. In fact, Dune, um, Although records aren't 100% on this, Dune basically didn't make back its budget when it was made, so... Yay. Now, I know what you're thinking. Hang on, hang on. But it's Dune! It's, it's one of the beloved sci-fi classics. How could multiple people not want to see this film? Part of the problem, this is my opinion, excuse me. Part of the pro problem, in my opinion, is that they decided to go ahead and go with a let's try to appeal to a larger audience than people who are already fans of Herbert's work. Nothing necessarily wrong with that. But in order to do so, they tried to make a presentation which has tiny snippets of a greater story which are basically unexplained. I mean, the princess right at the beginning is a great example of that. Hi, I'm here to give you some plot exposition and then vanish from the film. Who was that? Why was she significant? Now, we know in the books why she's significant, but in the movie she's just sort of there... So, um, it got so bad, and I was really trying to find a specific copy of this, but unfortunately I was not able to. I was going to read it to you. Uh, people in theaters, in some theaters, were actually being handed, and I kid you not, plot summaries to help people get on board with everything that was going on. Maybe it's just me, but when your film requires a plot summary to be handed out to audience goers, maybe you're aiming in the wrong direction. Now, I will also say that the the, the next problem, because we're not even done with the pre-production problems, or, the next problem was post-production, because Lynch and several of the, the creative minds involved were basically shoved out of the metaphorical editing room and told, yeah, go away. We're going we're gonna to work on this. And certain critical scenes were... were uh, were cut through fear scene is a great example. Why did they cut through fear scene? I, I don't even understand. That was a, not only it was a great scene, it was one of the very few character centric scenes of the entire film. I'll talk more about that later. And so he's just it's gone. It's even especially weird because if you're paying attention, he's there, and then there's a couple of edit cuts, and then he's not there anymore, and nothing is ever mentioned about it. It's just huh. The direction they went with the editing, the direction, the direction they went with the post, is something that Lynch has stated that he was very, very against. Again, better or worse, who knows. <sighs> now, I have to admit something. Some of my viewers will know this because I talked about this when I was working on this rumination. I don't have a lot to say about this film. I don't know how long I've been talking so far, but I really don't. There's not a lot for me to discuss. And after having gone through the film uh, twice, actually, I really wanted to get more stuff to jot down. I came up with the four additional uh, notes on my notepad here in my second viewing. I think I've discovered why it is I have so little to say about this film. 
I tend to be a bit of a story guy. I know, weird. But my biggest focus is usually on characters. Character moments, characterization, character growth, visual storytelling of characters. But with precious few exceptions, I don't really have anything to say about any of the characters in this film. Paul himself obviously has a reasonable amount of screen time, and yet for all that screen time, I couldn't talk to you about his character. I have nothing to say. He's there. Um, he, he's, he's the warped byproduct of, of the, uh, the Bene Gesserit's breeding program and, and genetics program that they're doing. We know that he, he is part of the way, but that's only from the books. They don't even mention the way in the movie. So it's like, I don't know what to say about this. I don't know what to say about him. You know, what do I say about... I don't even remember her name. <laughs> the, the, the Freeman woman he gets with. I, I literally can't think of her name right now. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of big-name actors in here that I recognize from a lot of other science fiction works, and I just look at them like, okay. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing. I have seen stories where characters are effectually, effectively non-entities, and they're there to drive other aspects of the story. Uh, plot being a higher focus in some stories, or theme, themes being a higher focus in some stories. A good example, I actually recently did a lore run of the Modern Warfare series, and in that Modern Warfare 1 doesn't have particularly large characterization for basically anyone, but instead is very, very heavy on leaning on the themes of the work, and that's where the story focuses. And in this one, the story focuses on... Um... Give me a minute. No, I'm joking for effect. There really isn't a lot of story focus in the film, in my opinion. If I was to parallel this, forgive me for quoting Lord of the Rings, but it, it feels like it's, it's a bit of butter spread too thinly across a, a, a layer of toast. It feels like they had just a little bit, and they were like, okay, stretch it out, because we really want to get the whole scope of this work in. There's a decent amount of politicking going on. I'll talk about that. Um... There's some thematic significance and allegory to the Middle East and the oil. You know, spice, oil, blah, 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 right? <laughs> but I, I don't have anything else to share on that. So let me go ahead and just get to my notes, and then you can yell at me. I expect some really bad comments in the YouTube here, and that's okay. I, I deserve it, because I can't, I can't come up with anything. I got nothing. Let's talk about the Emperor. <clears throat> so right at the beginning, I was initially with it, because what we see is some good old-fashioned politicking. The Emperor, uh, Emperor Shaddam IV, is going to go ahead and gift Atreides, or excuse me, gift Arrakis to the Atreides. In other words, here you I am giving you direct and personal control and management of the most important planet in the freaking empire. Congratulations, here you go. A huge boon, tremendous blow, right? Well, it's actually being done because the effort and work involved in facilitating that is going to weaken them and make it so that their attention is focused elsewhere, which means they're going to be considered more vulnerable to the Harkonnens, their particular uh, rivals. Okay, all of that makes a degree of sense. I'm kind of with that. It feels like the Emperor is basically ensuring that those nobles under him are fighting each other rather than turning their eyes to him. Then he sends down his own troops to support Harkonnen. That doesn't make quite as much sense. Now, granted, the Emperor was being ordered around by the Guild. I'll talk about them in just a second. But it really feels like he's getting a little bit too personally involved in what should effectively be a 
border dispute, uh, not even a border dispute, just just the nobles playing at their Game of Thrones amongst each other, and instead he decides to personally involve himself. That never quite synced with me, especially since this plan basically hinges on the idea that the Harkonnens are either A, going to be able cap- capable of capably taking care of Arrakis, or B, they're uh, a known quantity. In other words, that the Harkonnens are no threat to the Emperor. And yet what we see is the Harkonnens' reach and control is significant and substantial, while at the same time they are utter gibbering morons, to a point where it actually becomes ludicrous. It, it, it's, it goes past ridiculous and into just boring. I, I, there were several scenes that I had to kind of parsely look away because they were just so gross, and other scenes where I was just so dull. It's like, okay, yes, I get it, you're evil, uh-huh. You can stop emphasizing it now, I understand. I'm not even going to recite any of these for you. Anybody who's seen this film knows what I'm talking about. And this, of course, does tie into my predominant point, which I'm still building up to. But I really feel like the Harkonnens are... (sighs) 70s cartoon villains. And I say 70s specifically, because more modern cartoon villains can have some nuance or depth to them. No, I'm talking about... (laughs) And then I will bomb this building! (laughs) Why are you bobbing the building? Because I will bomb it! (laughs) No, seriously. It actually destroyed my suspension of disbelief, too, as I was going for the film, because the film, in almost every way, presents the Harkonnen family and power as basically the predominant noble family. And yet, I can't imagine how that's possible. Like, Piter is the only thing they've got going for them. By the way, props to Brad Dora for that role, even though he, uh... Well... (laughs) <laughs> Even he doesn't manage to salvage the role, but it was at least nice to see him. But, you know, Piter is like, ah, oh, yeah. At least him and having that mentat there is something that they could, I could understand them, you know, being like, aha, yes, this is what allows us some level of, of competency, some level of power. I, <laughs> I'm just sitting here like, I, I don't understand why you guys are a significant threat. I honestly have wouldn't be surprised if the Harkonnens were like, yeah, let's go take Arrakis. And if they hadn't had the troops supporting from the Emperor, then they might have failed. Although maybe that's why the Emperor supported them, because they're so incompetent he needs to physically get involved. I mean, Lord knows later in the film when the Emperor actually shows up and kills uh, Fatty McFatface, I don't remember his name, it, you know, he's trying to assert, hey, uh, Mr. Harkonnen, you... Um, you seem to have been failing miserably around here. I want you to get your act in gear. This is the closest thing I have to a possible motivation for the Emperor's politicking in supporting the Harkonnens. The idea that he would thus be weakening the Harkonnens as well by, by forcing the Harkonnens to rely on the Emperor's forces in order to be capable of accomplishing anything. But even that is, is just me making up stuff. I don't think any of that's really presented in the film. And yeah, I know books. We all know Baron Harkonnen is very different in the books compared to how he is in this film. Or book, excuse me, book. I should say that singular. <sighs> so, <clears throat> I, I guess that's all I have to say about that. Uh, let's talk about the Bene Gesserit. Um, one of the things that I find most interesting about the Bene Gesserit in this film, got to keep emphasizing that, is that they keep talking about, you know, they've got this whole genetic plan, the breeding program that they've got going on in order to craft the perfect vessel. Now, 
in the books, that goes in a certain direction. But right now, in the film, it is presented as an idea that they are trying to craft what is effectively the ideal human who will be able to do what no other human could, literally entering the realm of the supernatural. While Dune has supernatural elements, they are very, very low tier, so that kind of fits with the overall tone and arc of the film. Now... I have another thing, and I weirded out because, no pun intended, because I don't think I've seen anyone else comment on this. And yeah, I know, book, book, blah, blah, blah. In the film, I really feel like the Bene Gesserit aren't actually trying to craft the perfect person, so for the betterment of humanity, I feel like they're trying to craft the perfect person to be their perfect puppet. A lot of what they do, especially the, the bald woman whose name I can't remember, really feels like this presentation of... I don't, it's not that she wants to test you or push you in a direction. It's more like she wants to have total control over what you do so that her ends are always served. In other words, another form of politicking, but much more overt and much more deliberate. The fact that she literally can, has, and can use the voice is an excellent example of this. But probably my favorite example is actually very early on in the film when she uh, forces Paul to do the hand test, right? Right, put your hand in. It was actually his right hand. Put your hand in. This is pain. And then she puts the needle here. Now, she states this is to test if he's human. Even as a kid, I never bought that. That makes no sense. All you're doing is testing as if he's stupid. Any human being, any human being with basic understanding and willpower could, could, could pass that test. So what's the point of the test? I think it's to breed obedience. I think that she was hedging her bets that Paul might be either the actual one she was looking for or the leading in that direction in future generations. So she wants to try and ensure and instill this kind of willpower-focused obedience within anyone that she has within her reach, him being a good example of this. Later on in the film, he pretty much flat out, she, sorry, God, flat out says, kill it, it's an abomination, referring to the child, and... I really feel like the reason she was doing that was because she knew she had no control over her. She couldn't use the voice on her. She couldn't have extend her political control over her. And she didn't have the backing of the rest of the, uh, the, the Jesseret in order to be able to you know, enforce her will. She felt in that moment powerless against something that was beyond her control. Now, this might just be her individual motivations and not the motivations of the whole organization. But I very much got that impression throughout the course of the film. Maybe it was just down to the actress's acting. I don't know. Next thing I want to talk about uh, is the guild. Um, actually, no. First thing I want to talk about is Yui's. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. I wrote down a, a pronunciation guide. <laughs> it's the guy from Quantum Leap. You know, the, the, the traitor. Traitor. Now, Yui, uh, his revenge is ridiculous. No matter how I think of it, his entire revenge plan is just kind of stupid. Ah, yes, so I'm going to wipe out your people and wipe out your, your lives and wipe out your holdings. And, but, but, but... You'll get to kill the Baron. Isn't killing that one guy worth it? Yeah, I know. There's other ways to explain this and why this makes sense. But i got to be blunt, especially in the film, the way this is presented is just silly. And it's worth noting that he himself admits that his wife is probably dead, and therefore the, you know, the, the, the weight being over, held over his head isn't really significant. But it's okay, because he'll be able to kill the Baron. Oh, but that fails too, and then they lose uh, Piter. So that was the end of that. Whoops. I, 
I'm just amused because the series of, of, of events for his betrayal is like, all right, so then the troops come in and then they start massacring people. Big fat guy starts flinging people over the ledge basically for fun. Yay! And then it's like, it's okay, it's okay, you'll get to kill the Baron. Is that worth it? I mean, we killed the Baron anyways by the end of the film. No. <laughs> I'm still building up to some points, trust me. I, I'm trying to weave a narrative here. I hope you're paying, I hope you're paying attention, because I know I'm just kind of wandering about, but I swear all of this is related. Because the next thing I want to talk about uh, is the weirding module. Now, probably the thing I like most about the weirding module is that it is, it's basically a form of a super weapon, but it is really down to earth when compared to how super weapons are usually portrayed in fiction. It's not a massive floating Death Star. It is a handheld weapon that through careful use and, uh, and training can be used to bypass defenses that otherwise couldn't be. Very, very powerful weapon in the hands of the right people. And very much implied to be the biggest reason why the Emperor decided to go and back this initial plan of going after Atreides. Even before the Guild showed up. Remember, when the Guild showed up, he had already begun this plan, and the Guild demanded to know what he was doing and why. The Guild only added the additional orders of go after Paul. That was, that was added on on top of that. So... It's also funny because in his actions, he is, and this is a classic case of irony, he has unwittingly given this incredible weapon to the Fremen, who have all of the advantages of the home turf and being adapted to functioning here, and now they have super weapons. Oh yeah, they can also ride the worm, so they actually have two super weapons. Yeah, good job. Um, <clears throat> but I mentioned the guild. Let's go ahead and talk about the guild. Because I feel like the guild is one of the more interesting aspects of the mythos in general. The books, the film, everything. The guild has an absolute monopoly on FTL travel. Let's just say it as bluntly as we can. And something about that is absolutely engaging to me. To have so much of a society residing one thing. Now this is true in most science fiction. In almost every science fiction, to, in, in, in some way or another, they are reliant upon blah in order to have FTL. And the moment you remove FTL from the equation, their society completely collapses. Uh, the game I'm playing with Guido on my Thursdays in Stars Without Number is built upon that idea that FTL goes away. Now what? You know, that's it. How do we deal with this? Um, or I should say, you know, greater FTL, lesser FTL. Um, in Mass Effect, the reliance upon the relays is a huge, significant, and thematic plot point throughout the course of the games. Um, in Star Trek, the Omega, the Omega Molecule and its ability to destroy subspace, which would prevent warp travel from being functional, etc., etc., etc. So this is a common trend. And that, so it makes perfect sense to me that the Guild would have such absolute power that no one would even dare touch them to the point where they can be arrogant and casual and not even need defenses or bodyguards because only the immensely stupid would dare go after them. The Guild doesn't even have to retaliate you know, militarily. They just say, okay, we're not going to transport you. Have fun being planet-locked. Right? So I enjoy the way that the guild almost effortlessly and casually orders around basically everyone, especially the emperor himself. Because that also makes perfect sense from, from a believability perspective, but also from a real-life perspective. And I've, I told you I'd be building up to this point, so here it is. Um, there's no way to say this without sounding like I'm referring to the TV show, but I swear I'm not. This whole film is about a Game of Thrones to me. Again... 
I don't mean the TV show. I mean the concept. The idea that the nobles and the aristocrats and the wealthy and the powerful, politically, financially, militarily, all want to carry about their little game. That that's what they care about. That that's all they care about. And the consequences of reality don't matter to them. Why would they? They're rich. They're powerful. Who cares if a few hundred random people die, or a few thousand? Who cares if this particular section of, of life is cut off, or if we have to destroy these people's homes? Why would that matter? That doesn't affect me. And I feel that in almost every aspect of this film. Now, I do know that the film made it so that the Atreides were far more good than in the book, and the Harkonnens were far, far more bad than in the book. Um, there's this great bit where... Uh, where, God, I can't even think of his name, the Duke, is like, hey, I need to go save these people's lives. Oh, my God, why? Lives are more important than spice. And everyone's just wigged out by that, you know, because he's a good guy. But my point is, virtually every, if not every, noble person involved in this is more interested in their own politicking and their own sphere of influence than attending to reality. The Emperor is playing his games across Atreides and Harkonnen. Harkonnen is playing his own games of trying to expand his own power base without understanding that he has been given the keys to the galaxy by being given control of Arrakis. Even the Atreides Duke isn't fully cognizant of just how much power has been dropped into his lap because his vision doesn't extend beyond the reach of his own desk. Um, the, the woman, the bald woman, the Bene Gesserit woman, she, of course, is more interested in her own particular influence and how it affects her and her power base than she is about the fact that she may have actually found the person who could be the destined one to start the frickin' way and get humanity on its new path that it's supposed to be on to rec restore itself from this dark age. I, I know, I know, I'm getting a little bit of the book, but you get my point. Like, she, she sees Paul. And she sees the child and she sees the power that they both have. And she's just like, oh, God, this is an affront to me. This is an affront to my game. Probably my favorite example of this... Well, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I skipped ahead in my thoughts about a paragraph. Let me rewind a second, mentally. All of this showcases... The Guild is another example. The Guild doesn't give a crap about any of this, except for that spice. They need that spice. Not just because, you know, but also because of the fact that that is where their power comes from. The Guild needs that to maintain their game of power. You with me? It's, it's, it's predominant throughout the whole work. The one exception is Paul. I shouldn't say the one exception. There's actually a lot of exceptions, but the one predominant exception, the spearhead, the, the, the tip of the spear of accepting that is Paul himself, who doesn't give a crap, who cares about his people, who cares about what is right, and who actually goes out of his way to cause it to rain in the desert. Paul, who has something that none of the others have, doesn't care about their games. He has personal power. He's probably the only one in this, in this particular film who actually has personal power. Uh, it, it, he demonstrates this so wonderfully when he actually uses the weirding shout on, uh, oh God, Fady or whatever his name is, the Sting, the guy played by Sting, uh, in order to destroy the ground under him without the use of a module, just to show that he could do that. And then, of course, he summons the rain in the desert because he can do that. That's personal power. And he does not give a crap about any of their games. And I find that to be one of the only things interesting and engaging to think about for me after I was finished with the film. Because I've always said that there is one thing that always penetrates and indeed can break political power, and that is personal power. I also like to think that at least part of that was done to remove some of the guilt control over the reality, but, you know, whatever. 
All in all, this film was very weird to get through twice. And I apologize for the fact that I just don't have much else to say about this. I hope you have nevertheless enjoyed, and I hope to see you guys next time for another uh, movie based on a novel with Jurassic Park. See you around.